Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology. My name is Travis Shaddix. Thank you for coming. I see we already have several people in the chat this evening. I am uh, super excited about tonight. We, uh, we've had a good run of guests. And it seems like it keeps like getting better and better as the days go by. So um, tonight we're going to be going over a paper that is a little bit similar to yesterday's paper. If you remember yesterday's paper, we went over, um, it was more like slow release versus soluble and, um, in Indiana and today's paper isn't a nitrogen source paper. It's more of a nitrogen application timing paper. Um, but it was conducted by the same team of people and I'm very happy to have Dr. Kel Bigelow join me this evening. Kale, how are you? I'm well, Travis. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, to, <clears throat> to those who don't know, Dr. Bigelow was awarded the a, as a, uh, a fellow of the American Society of Grammy yesterday, I think it was, wasn't it? Uh, it was Monday. I'm actually coming to you live from a fancy hotel room <clears throat> here in uh, downtown St. Louis because I've been attending the uh, Tri Societies meetings of uh, the Soil Science Society of America, Crop Science Society of America, and the American Society of Agronomy. So uh, my brain's a little saturated with yeah. uh, all this new uh, cutting edge research from our uh, our, our um, agricultural colleagues. But it's, yeah. it's always uh, uh, inspirational too. Always looking for that <clears throat> next fun study. Yeah, I was telling people yesterday, Kale might be the first person to speak at such a, or speak and listen to presentations at such a high scientific level and then immediately be able to you know present that or speak about that to the people who can actually use it in the field like applicators and so forth who's most of the audience will be tonight so um you, you might be the first i don't know but um that's a very um i don't know that's a very unique situation where you're going i know what you mean where you're going high high level and all this stuff and it's like wait a second who, who would use this stuff oh these people on the show tonight they'll use that information <laughs> so oh, the, the stewards of our land right travis exactly exactly well kale for those who um might not be familiar with you why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and uh what you do and, and a little bit about your history uh yeah so um i am a turf grass scientist uh i'm a professor uh in the college of agriculture at purdue um i've been doing all three aspects of the land grant mission uh teaching uh the instructional side with our undergraduates um uh the practical research and projects like nutritional management for uh you know golf turf sports turf lawn turf utility turf you know if it if it uh, needs to be fed. I've, I've probably touched something uh, in my research program with it uh, over the years and then uh, do a fairly heavy um, outreach component of my job uh, on the extension side, both uh, regionally from, uh, you know, from the hub of West Lafayette and uh, nationally. And I've, I've been fortunate through my career even to have uh, some opportunities to present some of the information we've learned uh, to international audiences. Uh, in Europe and Asia and um, uh, places like that, so uh, uh, it's 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 a busy job. Um, but I've always tried to I've always tried to approach it from the standpoint that you talked about a few minutes ago. Is is how do we find some some practical solutions for the people that are uh, actually out in the industry and, and and trying to do the best that they can 
uh, um, and, and, and take care of these properties. Yeah. I, I was thinking, who was I talking to? Can't remember who it was now, but I, I mean, I, I'm all, all about science and I like reading, you know, high level papers and I like reading, you know, papers about, you know, information that really is the, the value is limited to the end user applicator type of person. It's more scientific community type of work. Like for example, people working on like developing higher quality HPLCs and stuff, you know, that, that that's all good stuff. High level statistics, great stuff. But I, I tend to, I tend to appreciate more writers and authors who do that stuff, who write the big grants and get the, get the big money, get, you know, you know, do, do their job, but also don't lose sight of, you know, this information has to be applied in some way. And usually that's either a homeowner or a business owner or a small, you know, lawn care operator or golf course superintendent, whatever it is. And, you know, we, we don't lose sight of that, but I just like it when papers in the conclusions or towards, you know, towards the end, sort of sum things up and say, you know, if you're a homeowner, or if you're a long car operator and you're looking for the, you know, it kind of, I don't know, contextualizes it and, and brings back to the point, like these are, these are the people who can use this information rather than strictly science for science sake, you know, and that's what this paper does tonight. So, okay, well, very good. I'm glad I, I stimulated something in your brain there, Travis, and, and hopefully whoever, <laughs> is going to listen to this tonight has a, has a few things they can take away and, you know, maybe improve their operation or have a better understanding of, you know, why things happen the way that they do. And, um, just, uh, have a, have a little better appreciation for the tools that are in the toolbox there. Yeah. We, I've, I don't know if somebody can go back and look at, I don't know how many I've done so far, 20 or 30, 40 papers, whatever it is, one paper per show. And from what I can tell, from the feedback I've got, some people who, who small operators or big operators, whatever they are, have told me, you know, hey, I didn't realize that I've I've adjusted this program or I would have done this instead, and now I, I think I might consider this now or whatever. So, the information, and that's sort of the purpose of this channel. The information is out there, but it's not all. I think I can speak for myself as a prior academician, I didn't always, I, I just assumed people knew this stuff was there and they knew how to go get it. And I, I don't know if that's was fair for me to think that way in terms of like lawn care operators or golf course superintendents are busy doing a lot of other things. They're not necessarily sitting around wondering, Oh, what new article came out in crop science this week, you know? And, and, um, so hopefully in some small way, I'm providing a little bit of, I don't know, guidance or and opening up the doors a little bit to, you know, this, to the fact that this information is there, you know, and, and, um, and it's intended to be applied in many cases and by people like you who are watching this show tonight. So, um, hopefully we can build on that with this paper. So, yeah, and, and the other thing I just want to add to that, Travis, because I know that sometimes I get excited about an area that I'm not familiar with and, you start to, you start to want to know more, right? Mm -hmm. You start to do some searches and, you know, one of the, one of the things that we're seeing more and more are these open access papers where pretty much anybody can get to them. And, uh, that's, that was something we talked about in our business meeting today was, um, you know, making sure folks that want information can get to it. Um, and then the other part of that is that these papers are fact-based, right? I mean, there's, there's, you know, when we've done some of these studies, it's not like we're trying to, 
sell something or make money off it or you know this this, this is just what we found here's the results and um uh your mileage may vary right so <laughs> well so you were talking you guys were talking about open access in the asa business meeting uh absolutely um and to your point the you know applied turf grass management turned in a crop forge turf Cro crop and forage, crop forage yeah, and turf grass it, management. It changed its title, but there's there's a, a, a suite of um, different um, categories with that group, and those are our really practical papers. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you know, when we've submitted things in the past, we had to do like three key point bullet things. Yeah. And now they're asking instead of just our our traditional scientific abstract, which is part of the paper is they're asking the the authors to write a practical summary so that basically oh. anyone you know a family member that's not familiar with the science can pick oh. it up and say hey oh this is what this paper is about and that's that's part of what you'll see on these open access papers in the future so i think that's really cool that's that's specific to the only the, like applied turf or what it used to be called uh, yes, yes okay yep, okay yep yeah because for those who might not necessarily know i don't know if people care to know or not but there there are practitioner journals if you want to call them that or applied journals like applied turf crop forage turf grass management um and then there's science sort of hardcore science papers not that the hardcore science papers can't be used practically as we're going to talk about tonight this is a top tier journal that you published in and we're going to use it for you know what it's intended it's applied um, but those science journals like in crop science are oftentimes behind a paywall and as authors we can pay to have a different i don't know if they call it a license or a copy i don't know what the terminology is but we can pay an additional fee to have that specific article be open access but there's other journals that all the journals are all the papers are open access in that journal and so crop forge turf grass management is always open access all that well i don't know when it was but all the uh hort science uh journals are all, all now open access so Hort Tech and Hort Science and all those are open access. And I don't know how I feel about that, Kale. I mean, I, I, as a purist, I would like to see all science open and in front of a pay. I don't want them to be, all the information to be behind a paywall. You know, it, it's science to, to enhance the well-being of humans. And to have that be behind a paywall, I'm not real warm and fuzzy about that. But at some point, you got to realize you got to pay for this somehow. We got editors and we got all sorts of teams of people getting these things out that have to get paid. And so it's a balancing act. I don't know where I stand on all that stuff, but we do have crop forage and turf grass management. That is, that is open access. And we do have the, I've been, I've been teaching people at least doing my best to show them that even though some journals are behind paywalls, journal articles are behind paywalls, the abstracts never behind the paywall. You can at least read that and get a good sense of, what happened, even though it might be in SI units and it might not be in familiar terminology, you can kind of get a ballpark idea as to what happened and to at least to the point where it's of interest, you find out whether it's of interest to you and you want to pursue it or not. But, and I think somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't remember who it was, but one of my audience members joined, well, he said he was going to join the ASA so that he could have access to these journals. And I don't know if he ever did, but we were looking up prices on memberships and journal fees and so forth to to be able to have access to things like crop science and i was like man that's fantastic that's i mean i mean that's above and beyond what i ever dreamed of, of happening on this channel to have to have people consider doing that because you can be a member get the uh, access to the journal and you can go back for 
60, 70, 80, 90 years and download all the articles that are online and, and read them to your heart's content and really, as you, I think yeah. you, maybe you mentioned, go down get the rabbit really hole. Good night's sleep, right? Get a really <laughs> good night's sleep if you're yeah, insomniac, well, you can just dig in. Yeah, at some point I'll go into my own personal issues, but there's not a lot of people, I hope, for God's sake, I hope there's not a lot of people like me who sit and read 90-year-old articles on sulfur and and I don't even get paid for it. I just do it because I like it. I mean, who does that? It's, it's bizarre. But so I hope there's not too many people who do that. But um, but there's one or two who wanted to go back and read some articles and maybe they got a membership. So anyway, that's a little bit about background about the article. So th this article today, let's get into it, Kale. So the article today is entitled The Above Ground Responses of Cool Season Lawn Species to Nitrogen Rates and Application Timings. Now, this was published in 2007 in, in, in Crop Science. Yeah, so 2007 in, in, in Crop Science by Christina Walker. I'm assuming maybe incorrectly she was your graduate student. I don't know. Uh, yes, so she was uh, one of my graduate students early in my career there at Purdue. She is okay. uh, currently a, um, a professor up at the University of Minnesota, Crookston. Okay. So, uh, you know, she went on to take a career in academics and um uh yeah so she was um she was one of my grad students perfect so christina uh bigelow yourself smith van skoyak did i say that right yeah, so um very very strong uh, soil fertility expert okay um and still actually saw him at the meeting this week so he's still he's retired he has emeritus status and uh still comes to the meetings he likes to stay plugged in hey yeah, that's you know you don't, you, you don't yeah you don't get emeritus for free i mean you get it because you put your time in and you're dedicated right right and then of course zach Riker is on the end there so right. this is a extension specialist at the time yep oh he was okay okay yep. so um what i normally do kale is i'll go through here and i'll i'll read i'll hit the bullet points of the introduction i'll hit the bullet points of each thing and i'll read through i'll actually will read many parts of the article but instead of doing that tonight i'm wondering perhaps you can just give us a once over sort of set the stage you know what was the 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 background or the setting of why you even pursued sure. this research and um, a little bit about you know the the little bit about the introduction but what were the objectives and sort of how it all got started yeah so you know again you gotta put this a little bit into context is you know thinking about i was relatively early in my career uh at purdue and uh, starting to establish my program uh, my background personally on the academic side is uh, I have a bachelor's and master's from Virginia Tech. My PhD is from North Carolina State University. And then I had done a postdoc at the University of Maryland. And I bring that up because, you know, the state of uh, Virginia and Maryland are close to the Chesapeake Bay, right? Mm -hmm. uh, North Carolina, while I was there doing my um, PhD related to uh, putting green construction, uh, there was a lot of nutrient management work that was happening because of some of the nutrient enrichment that was happening down towards the Wilmington area. Um, and so when I came to uh, the Midwest and started looking at opportunities and potential needs was um, you know, this, this, this idea of, of trying to do some work in sustainability, particularly with respect to nutrient management. Now, there's, there's another piece of this um, uh, of this paper is, you know, we were looking at three different species, three different lawn species. And, uh, and we had Kentucky bluegrass, which when I came to Indiana was, you know, primarily the dominant uh, lawn species in the state. Uh, we have perennial ryegrass as um, uh, AJ Powell used to call it, you know, the grass we love to hate. 
Um, it's, it's, you know, but that, but we find that a lot of particularly um, home lawns are dominated by perennial ryegrass, even though people think they're Kentucky bluegrass lawns. And then uh, in my experience there at Virginia Tech is, you know, I got exposed early on to some of the earlier uh, turf type tall fescues and had started to see improvements in turf type tall fescues. And um, I was interested to, uh, as I went back through the literature, I was like, you know, I think there's an opportunity here because a lot of our nutritional studies were primarily done with one single species. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll do these programs on bluegrass or we'll do these programs on, you know, a mixed stand of, you know, our, our Midwest mix, which is fine fescue, Kentucky bluegrass and perennial ryegrass. And I was like, well, let's see if there really is a difference between these different species as far as seasonal appearance, um, you know, what the nutrient requirements might be across the growing season. And then I was also, you know, just having some discussions with the lawn care industry uh, in in the early part of my career. And I was like, knowing that they they're they're so fixated on how much things cost, you know, the cost of labor and, and how do we how do we do the most labor efficient programs? And so um, I went back and, you know, had some conversations with some of my colleagues and I was like, okay, we've got, we've got room for this number of treatments and we need these standards. What happens if we don't fertilize something? And we all know that's not wise because it's a biological system and nitrogen is important. Uh, but we got to put that one in there. And then, uh, you'll see there's another pro- a program in there where we, we fed it basically five times across the growing season based on some input with our lawn care operators, that typical five round program. And then I started to, you know, have some conversations of, okay, if you can only put down fertilizer once or twice for the growing season, you know, targeting our DIY homeowners more is, is when are those ideal times to do that? And then the intent of this, which eventually became um, uh, the basis for our updated, you know, cool season lawn recommendations for the state of Indiana. So, mm-hmm. you know, this was, this was, this was research with purpose and, uh, really starting to tease out, you know, okay, if you do it this way on bluegrass, is that okay? If you do it this way on ryegrass, is that okay? But it was, it was, it was really just trying to refine our nitrogen recommendations for lawns, particularly in that, in that central Indiana Midwest region. Okay. Perfect. So if I may, thank you for the introduction. So if I may just, I guess, just read the objectives, just so everybody is clear. The objectives of the study was to evaluate the above ground responses of the three primary cool season lawn species to various annual nitrogen programs, which varied by in-application timing and rate. So we're going to go into the materials method just real briefly. I don't want to lose people in it, but there's a couple of things I want to point out. But this uh, table here, table one, where you talk about the application dates mm-hmm. and the rates, they were, um, it, we're, we're not comparing in source here. Okay. So in source is not a, an effect that we're measuring, you know, differences between say slow and soluble. That's the paper that we did yesterday. Um, this one is simply looking at, now you did apply some soluble in it. The, this in-source is slightly varied based on when you applied it. But if it was applied in a certain day, um, month, then it was always that type of fertilizer. So I want to make sure that that's clear before we move too much further, Kale, because that the, the, the setup of this is a little bit um, more involved than we applied urea in September or we applied urea in October, right? Because um, you have different application months 
and then you have different application rates. But within each one of those months, if, if urea was applied, it was it was applied as urea. But then you also had a treatment, not a treatment. You also had a month where it was urea and sulfur coated urea blended together. So I want to make sure that the audience understands, you know, the setting of how this was done. So this was, as you mentioned here in the materials and methods, this was conducted at Purdue in December of uh, September oh three through oh five at the in West Lafayette, yep. the Indiana. Center, yep. Okay. Uh, silt loam soil. Silt loam soil is that that's that's sub common to that area. Silt loam soil. It, I guess. Yeah, it's pretty. It's probably the most common soil type you'll find in the in Tippecanoe County. So with a pH of seven four, and what what extractant were you guys using back then? Soil extractant. Um, that's a good question. I that's probably the ammonium acetate. Uh, oh, with the pH, hmm. yeah. So the um, well, I was thinking more like phosphorus and potassium. Oh yeah, that that would have been. This was all malic stuff. So malic so one or three? Because uh, we, I don't think Florida. It was three. three. Okay. Because Florida didn't switch to malic three till like two thousand and maybe three or four. So this was two thousand. This is right at that same time frame. So I wasn't sure like which yeah. one it would have been but 67 kilograms per hectare so this is 30 ish something like that 30 35 ish you know parts per million i don't somewhere around that number it, which is probably not too low but you know on the borderline i don't know what you don't know what you don't know what your critical limits are on phosphorus but anyway it's you know above the critical limit probably but it's not real high and the potassium is, is not real high either it's probably in the medium range oh wait yeah, and the organic matter is 4.7%. So it's a fairly fertile soil. It's not, you know, beach sand. Um, so I just want to make sure everybody understands that it was done in Purdue. It was done on a relatively fertile soil. And talk to me about, so now talk to me about the blends that you used. Um, not necessarily all the different variety cult, cultivars, but what were the, the three species? So the three species, again, you know, the abbreviation you'll see throughout the paper for those following along at home is, you know, TTTF, that's turf type tall fescue, as opposed to something like a Kentucky 31, which we know um, can be a little deeper rooted than some of our turf types, um, depending upon that particular turf type. But all tall fescues can really have a pretty robust root system once they get established. Mm -hmm. uh, the Kentucky bluegrass was, uh, says there, you know, premium sod blend. So these are all high quality uh, Kentucky bluegrasses at the time. And then our, uh, um, our perennial ryegrass blend as well. And, you, and those are all, you know, good quality uh, perennial ryegrasses uh, in, that, um, in that blend. So. Um, okay. Do you have a, like, what is, what is, is there such a thing as a, recommended turf variety for home lawns in indiana um you know we we have kind of three regions in the state right you know kind of you go uh sort of the michigan line down maybe say 100 miles and that's sort of the northern part of the state then you have central indiana indianapolis and then you have the ohio river valley right hmm. and so north to south um turf type tall fescue can survive reasonably well you know the southern part of the state we do see quite a bit of zoysia grass in a lot of lawns so okay. we need something that has the, the heat tolerance and the summer tolerance which turf type tall fescue is one of those grasses uh, when you get you know up into michigan and across that um or that lake effect from lake michigan comes you know you get more shade in the in certain time or more more 
low light intensity. Um, And so you end up with, um, if you don't have a vigorous turf, you end up with a fair bit of annual bluegrass and some lawns. Hmm. Um, But in general, you know, blanket statement for the state of Indiana. And this, you know, this research was part of it is I was trying to encourage, you know, what are the most sustainable species, potentially most sustainable species and, and easiest to maintain for lawns of the general purpose lawn. And so this was my um, efforts to try and get more turf type tall fescue adoption. And I think that after a good 20 years, we've started to get people planting more of these turf types. And the, yeah. the best part is, you know, the turf types continue to get better as far as more narrow leaves and darker green color. And, yeah. and um, it's, it's, uh, it's been nice to see that uh, our lawn care folks and even to a certain extent, some of our golf course folks are putting in more and more of the turf type tall fescues. Yeah. We have a, we've had a huge problem here for a year. Well, Mun, Dr. Munshaw would know more about this than I, maybe Dr. Powell, if he was still around, he would know more than I do. But, um, people in Kentucky, unfortunately think we need Kentucky bluegrass in our lawns because it says Kentucky bluegrass, right? And Kentucky 31, we need Kentucky 31 in our home lawns, right? Cause it says Kentucky 31 on it. Um, and man, it just drives me nuts because if there's two, if there's a cultivar and if there's a species in all of our intep trials or any of our seed trials, whatever that do the worst, it's Kentucky 31 compared to our newer cultivars of turf type tall fescue and the bluegrass is compared to tall fescue, turf type tall fescue. They just struggle here. Bluegrasses, the heat and the dry conditions here, the, the bluegrasses just struggle. And then uh, Kentucky 31 just never performs near as well as the, as the newer cultivars. In fact, we've been talking about that the last day, the last couple episodes where, you know, I've been trying to explain to people and they, they get it. It's just that I'm trying to emphasize that genetics matter. You know, if, right if plant, right place. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's yeah. Right plant, right place. And even within species, cultivars can can vary drastically and i don't know if you you can you know have maybe have a different opinion than i do but today's let, let's just take an intep trial where you've got bukus a different species cultivar not species but cultivars you might have i don't know 30 40 different cultivars of a turf type tall fescue in a one trial who knows how many you got bunches of them the ones that do the poorest besides kentucky 31 the ones that do the poorest are usually as good or better than what we have in our home lawns today if your lawn's more than 20 years old. And those are the ones that are doing the worst in the intep trial. So imagine the ones that are doing the best. I mean, they're, they're, they're genetics matter. They do. I don't know if you see something similar in your area where these older lawns, you know, they had the cultivar or whatever they were using back then, but they're nowhere near as good as our worst cultivars are today. So um, I don't know. That's just my, my take on it. And just, I, I, I wish we could somehow get the word out. I don't know, louder that genetics matter. I mean, we're doing breeding programs like Rutgers and, you know, Florida and A&M and Oklahoma state. They, they're doing a heck of a job getting us good grasses. And, and it really does. And really in the last 10, 20 years, it seems like, I don't know, maybe it's just my impression, but it seems like it's been getting better. So, yes, um, I agree. Yeah. So don't, don't uh, think it's, oh, that's just, that's just a different cult. No cultivars matter. Okay. Sorry. Can, can you indulge me for a second and go back to the table of the treatments? Yeah, I'm about to get there. I'm going to go right okay. back up here. I was just going to read this little green thing. Yep. I'm sure. so, I'm, 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 I'll move a little quicker. The, the, uh, I just want to read this. The in fertilizer programs were initiated in September of 03 
There were eight infertility programs. Eight, oh, the eight infertility programs were evaluated, which varied by annual nitrogen ranging from no nitrogen all the way up to four pounds of nitrogen. So Correct. zero, one, is that one and a half? Is that yep. two and a half? Yep. And then uh, yes. four? Yep. Okay. So we have, yep. we have different rates, but the manner in which they were applied is, okay, you can see it on your end, is important to understand okay um, because not every possible combination of everything can po can be done we only have a limited amount of space here so um, what you want to walk us through table one and, and and take your time make sure you understand exactly you know absolutely. what was done here absolutely and, and you know um you know full disclosure just like yourself is you know we're constantly learning things and observing things and uh, you know, this, this was a mindset, you know, a good 20 years ago, and you, you still see this in some of the fact sheets from some of our, you know, research institutions on how to fertilize a lawn. But, uh, right at this time, you know, those November applications were very much under scrutiny, you know, that, that high soluble nitrogen, uh, being applied in November when our plant uptake of water and nutrients was declining. And, and, uh, so, we, for three of those programs, all the way on the right, where you see the November applications, we're putting down basically mm -hmm. a pound and a half of, you know, urea fertilizer. Mm -hmm. I would probably not recommend that here today in 2023. I really? would be very, very careful. Really? Um, well, that's interesting you say that because I, I lean that way as well. Why, why do you say that, Kale? I, I think that, you know, that that was a little bit of the the dogma at the time. Right. You know, this, this is the way grandpa did it. So this is the way we're going to keep doing it. But mm. there was there was enough smoke that was starting to, you know, lead to some fire that people were like, hey, we need to look at this a little more carefully and mm. think about how much the plant is actually taking up. Yeah. And, you know, the Purdue University sits up on a hill above the Wabash River. And, you know, this idea of, you know, are we doing everything in our power uh, to, you know, minimize any sort of negative effects towards water quality. But okay. because that was the historical precedent, um, you know, we were putting down in, in this early part of November that, mm -hmm. that pound and a half urea. And, you know, at this time in 2023, you know, if somebody were to ask me, should I do that application or not? Um, you know, I, I like to see it as close to Halloween as possible for my region. Um, and, you know, we want to make sure that the, the plant is still actively growing, that we're not getting a really, you know, strong cold snap. Um, and you know, that, that pound and a half is, is definitely not something I would recommend. I would probably be closer in that, you know, half pound is probably plenty, you know, and if, if you ended up with a pound, um, you know, that's, that's, that's the way it goes. But, um, and then you see another treatment in there, Travis, uh, you know, the first treatment, the September mm -hmm. only. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that, I think that's a pretty important treatment because that, that was that idea of those first two treatments. If, if I could only fertilize one time, if I only had the manpower, the budget for that nitrogen, and I could only fertilize my lawn one time, when is it going to be? Um, those, those were things that I was interested in seeing how that they did. Um, and, uh, and then the other ones are more programmatic uh across the growing season then you can see there's a a september and, and a november treatment that fourth treatment down there again again this this idea of some things that we knew mm -hmm. uh that the, the the textbooks were telling us that these fall applications to cool season grasses um were intended to build carbohydrates and you know provide some vigor 
not necessarily all for that period where you fertilized, but basically preloading for the next growing season. Um, and, and so the, that, that was the rationale between those. Um, and then the, the third treatment down there was basically what happens if you just do essentially spring only application? Is that going to carry you through? Because uh, my, my experience on, on lawn grasses is, you know, the, the two biggest things that drive whether or not somebody's happy with their lawn is, you know, is it consistently green across the growing season? And are we maintaining enough shoot density to, uh, you know, certainly crowd out or keep out any uh, unwanted weeds? And, and is there enough bigger there for, uh, you know, if there are some pests that come in and, you know, just foreshadowing some of the things that are in this paper with respect to what we saw with some of the foliar diseases that uh, quite, quite severely damaged some of these turf uh, plots in the, in the study. Okay. So let me back up one step here. Okay. These, these three, well, you have four here, but these three where you're applying a pound and a half in November. Okay. It's mm -hmm. the November, November only. You well, have a set. Grandpa always did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the September, November is, mm -hmm. is the one. And then you have another one in November where it's a part of a, May, July, and September program, major, major, and you're applying uh, four pounds in, and that, and that treatment, and you also have a pound and a half of it going out in November. And what, what I heard you say, and, and correct me if, if I'm misrepresenting this thing, what I heard you say is today you, you, you probably wouldn't recommend this, and it sounded to me, and I inferred from what you said, I'd be cautious with it. I you'd be, be cautious, cautious primarily from an environmental perspective. Is that what I heard you say? Yep. Okay. And, and, and as, as we all know, there's a lot of, it depends in any of these conversations. If somebody had not fertilized the entire growing season, you know, I'm yeah. going to have a little bit of a different conversation with that person. Okay. Um, but you know, we, I, I personally, based on what I, what I've seen and what I've read and some of the research that we know about, uh, nitrogen uptake with our cool season grasses later in the season at this point, um, you know, they, they're, they're not, if, if they're not transpiring, if the environmental conditions are not such that the plant's pulling moisture out of the ground is mm -hmm. this could be something that's hanging around and, and we're, we're, we're wasting some nutrients and they're going places we don't want them to be. Yeah. Let me, can we unpack that just a little bit, Kale? Sure. So you mentioned, you use this word for, or this phrase preloading, basically preloading for the next season. And I want to explore that a little bit with you. And, and so what, what we've discussed and we, we showed, um, oh, whose paper was it that we showed? Someone can help me out in the chat. It was, uh, I don't know if it was Soldat's paper. I can't remember now. Anyway, um, where they were looking at nutrient leaching through these various programs and the sort of the take home message was, is that these, these nutrients that are applied later in the season oftentimes do result in a color increase relative to no in or relative to other months. They oftentimes do have a color increase, very little growth increase, but color increase, but they enhance the environmental risk of leaching relative to earlier months in the, seems to me the consensus among us scientists is, is that's a result of the grass starting to slow down, starting to shut down, mm -hmm. not taking the nitrogen up which increases the risk of environmental impairment by leaching. So my question or my thought, or my, I would like to get your insight on this is if somebody is on, of the mindset of, I can put it down in November. I'm only, I know I'm only going to get a little bit then, 
but I know there's a good chance I'm going to get a, a pop in the spring from that application, you know, anyway. So why don't I go ahead and put it down now? My argument against that is, well, if you put it down in November and it sits there all winter and it doesn't go anywhere, okay, great. But the chances are pretty good it's going to go somewhere because the grass sure as heck ain't tanking it up. So our target organism, when it's dormant, has essentially no chance of ever taking up the, the nutrient that we applied for it to be taken up. So my thought is, well, let's just avoid those late November, December applications and put it out in the spring when the turf is beginning to actively grow. Where, where do you stand on that? Um, I think I, I, in general, agree with you. You know, we still have uh, the conversation about which nitrogen source are they putting down. And, and in this circumstance, we're talking about a highly water-soluble nitrogen source in the form of urea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people that are using some of the, you know, they're doing the dormant feeds with the natural organics still. Um, they're doing some of the dormant feeds with, um, you know, maybe even some of the, you know, uh, other controlled release nitrogen sources. And so they're, they're reducing the potential risk that way and maybe having something that's there for, um, uh, for the next spring. Uh, but, you know, I think the intent from our, you know, foundational turf grass scientists was this idea of, of maximizing carbohydrate accumulation and storage and then when the plant is ready to wake up the next spring it's got this internal supply of um you know biochemical nitrogen that then it can sort of reallocate and uh start to do its thing but um you know there and 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 you probably talked about this with with people is you know there is this one philosophy of cool season grass fertilization the holiday program right and so that would be you know, Easter, Memorial Day, July 4th, Labor Day, Halloween, Thanksgiving, and, and, and that can work. But I also know that as I started to get to know the state of Indiana, and we go from basically Chicago all the way down to the Ohio River Valley in Evansville, is the weather in November can be dramatically different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I'm up near Chicago and, you know, we've had hard freezes of the ground by the 10th of November, some years. Oh, yeah. And I absolutely positively would not recommend fertilizing anything right then, because mm-hmm. if we get rain or it thaws, that's, that's runoff. Right. Yeah, so, sure. So I, 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 I would prefer to see something closer towards that end of October here in 2023. Yeah. Okay. Now, the nitrogen that you applied was not always straight urea. There was, no. there were times when you blended or cut it with sulfur coated urea. You mind walking us through that so that we're hundred sure. percent clear on what you did. Um, and, and again, some of that was in con- consultation with uh, some of the, the lawn care practitioners in the state that were you know operating professional businesses and just trying to understand what they were doing. Um, the other thing was trying to make sure that we had a nice steady supply of nitrogen across you know, the, in between some of those applications, a lot mm-hmm. like a lawn care provider would do. Um, and we also know that, uh, you know, grass in the long days and the warmer months of, you know, May and June, if there's, if there's water around in the soil, you know, we can get some pretty big flushes of growth. So uh, it makes sense to uh, utilize something that has a controlled release uh, characteristic, such as the sulfur coat. And uh, we know that, you know, our lawn care folks, that's their favorite 
uh, or preferred source of nitrogen tends to be these uh, urea or coated urea products just because that's uh, proliferation in the marketplace for this segment, right? Sure, yeah. But, and you can see we did some things where um, we had some 50-50 blends. So there's there's some soluble in there and then yeah. some, uh, you know, some of that is a controlled release to give you that extra four to six weeks of feeding. Yeah. And then I believe the July application might have been 100% controlled. There you go. So, yeah. So it looks like October, November, all October, November applications, regardless of the treatment, if you want to call it that, they were always straight urea. Yep. All July applications were always 100% sulfur coated urea. Yep. And then they, you know, every other time it was a split 50, 50. I'm assuming the July sulfur coat was, was to not increase a lot of growth during the heat of summer. Is that was the intent? Yeah, behind the plan it? is under summer stress. The last thing you want to do is have it allocate some of its energy towards, you know, producing leaf blades. And, um, yeah. you know, the other thing that whether it's, it's myth or fact, I don't know that we have, 100% conclusive evidence on that is uh, we're always uh, in those summer months trying to guard against any sort of negative effects on the root system that's already going to yeah. lose uh, lose some uh, mass and density. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, okay. just trying to help the, help the plant conserve carbohydrates. Okay. So this is a very, I mean, it's, it's an involved setup, but it's a very um, practical, it was very practical. In other words, this is what people were doing or what people were, we were considering trying to think of other ways to do it better or whatever. But th there's a reason why there's a method to the madness. There's a method. There you go. There's a method to it. It might look and, a little bit. Can, yeah. You know. To your point, you know, you look at the, uh, the programs that are receiving those April fertilizations because mm -hmm. I was trying to, trying to figure out a little bit of, you know, oftentimes for the lawn care operator, you know, that's a time they're doing their weed and feed with their crabgrass, correct? Yeah. And so they're getting a, a fertilizer product that has some sort of a pre-emerge on it. And so I was trying to, um, I, I solicited some input from our, um, from our industry and they're like, yeah, we usually put about a half a pound down in April and then we're coming back with that second round in May. You know, that's the, the customer satisfaction piece and uh, trying to make sure that we got the plant fed and our, our weeds controlled in their lawns. I was like, okay, well, that's, that's okay. the information I needed. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. That, that feedback's critical. Any, anytime a, a, someone from university calls you and wants some input, it's, it's critical because they're trying to figure out what it, what are you doing so we can mimic that and, you know, and help you out, you know, so that's oftentimes why we want to get a hold of you folks. Okay. Let's continue through. So that's the setup. Okay. We're in Indiana. Uh, we're using three different species we have, uh, we're not looking at nitrogen source. We're looking at the manner and the time in which it was applied. And we have different rates. Now, what you measured was turf response to the nitrogen programs were, was measured through dry matter yield, clipping nitrogen concentration, which was, you don't go into a whole lot with that, but there's one table with that. And then visual ratings, you have quality and you have color in here. Uh, the turf quality, turf appearance was rated on one to nine six was the minimal acceptable so anytime in the tables today when we see this as six or greater that's going to be the minimum acceptable limit one was completely brown or dead and nine was optimal canopy greenness canopy greenness was quantified using a, um, a, a field scout so it was an instrument an objective measurement of canopy greenness is how they did that okay uh, anything else with the materials and methods? I think that's, I don't go into the stats. I, I don't want to send people to, to bed too early tonight. So I don't go through stats usually unless it's critical. Um, it looks like everything else was general basic stuff. I don't see anything that's out of the ordinary in terms of some hurricane came through and turned your data yeah. into mush. Um, 
some of our colleagues. And that's no fun. Yeah, it happened to us. It happened to me once. But I tell people, I was, who was it? It was uh, it was the Pennsylvania study. It was back in the seventies. Hurricane Ag- or was it the eighty? I can't remember. Hurricane Agnes hit right in the middle of a study in in Pennsylvania. And I tell I tell people keep taking data because you can't. You know that's the best thing that could happen really because it's going to happen again. And when are you doing a study, a controlled study, and suddenly a hurricane comes through? And we were doing a a, a wedding agent study. And a hurricane came through and I was like, don't stop taking data, you know, <laughs> you know, and you just note it and you write it up like that and you, you do your best to explain it. And, and that's, you know, it's good information, I think. Anyway, I digress again. Um, okay. I since I'll talk about the species if you want to. I generally like skip through species and cultivar stuff if it's because I like the nutrient stuff. But in this case. You have the species sort of summed up here, come really nice in one table where you have all the variables you measured. You want to walk through that just briefly, kind of absolutely. And and I think that's actually an important little summary table. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I would I would point out uh, a couple columns I think that are most important. And you know you always go to the far right because that's the beauty contest. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what you see there. And, and these are averaged across all of the nitrogen programs. I think that's important to mention as well, because uh, your mileage may vary again, depending upon the species. But, you know, if you look at that far right column, the most consistent species across the growing season, starting in the spring of the year and making these ratings through uh, basically November, uh, the most consistent species across that was the turf type tall fescue. Uh, the least consistent species was our perennial ryegrass. And uh, I think that's really important because we, we do have a lot of people that unfortunately have high populations of perennial ryegrass and they're not feeding them enough and maybe they're not irrigating them enough. And you can see the, the next column to the, to the left mm-hmm. is the disease. Yeah. And that was a major issue for some of our nitrogen programs with our perennial ryegrass. And mm-hmm. again, we talked about the cultivars that were planted in this and these were good quality cultivars. They were just in some situations not being fed enough based on some of the nitrogen programs. Yeah. The other, the other column that I'd like to point out there, Travis, is the one on the far left, the dry matter yield. And so, mm-hmm. so that's the sum of dry matter yield or leaf clippings uh, across, um, uh, across the, the two years of the study. Mm-hmm. And so the grass that produced the most biomass uh, is the turf type tall fescue. And, and that's consistent with a lot of what we still see today is that, uh, remember, turf type tall fescue, no pun intended, uh, has its roots as a forage grass. And so the intent of, you know, cultivating a forage or a pasture is to produce biomass. Um, our breeders have gotten better and sort of slowing down some of the vertical elongation of leaf blades. But uh, if you do feed or heavily feed a turf type tall fescue uh, lawn, in the spring months, when we get longer days and increasing soil temperature and all those other kinds of things, is the plant genetically wants to do what it was made to do. It mm-hmm. wants to produce the biomass. So we want to be a little careful with how much nitrogen we put out there. Or you may you may have to mow twice a week, right? Or yeah. You may have to bump your mowing height up instead of it, you know, two and a half inches. You're at three inches just to make sure those clippings filter back in there and you don't have that, that disruption in appearance. So I think that that's... Um, uh, those, those are, those are three important things to see, uh, in, in, in that table. Yeah. I love turf type tall fescue. I have it in my lawn here and, uh, yeah. 
some awesome uh, cultivars out there. It is. Yeah. You can see the older cultivars in my neighbor's lawns where they have these really wide, long blades. And um, sometimes they're blended in there with some fine fescues. Maybe they added it in over the years. Who knows? But I don't, I, I try to do nothing to my lawn, Kale. Like, yeah, we're if in the I, same boat. Oh, yeah, I, I don't have an irrigation system. I don't, I, the only reason I have any fertilizer on it now is because I have a trial on it. Mm, I mean, so okay. I, I don't, I try not to fertilize it ever. I don't, I don't want to mow it. I only, I only mow it under protest. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I just, you know, but it looks fine. And honestly, if you walk down the block, because I actually put in some newer cult, newer varieties, I killed all my lawn. It was a hodgepodge of old, who knows what was in there. And I put in a new, a new, a blend. And so it's the newer cultivars and it looks fine. You know, it's perfectly fine with me the way it looks. And it's fine with all my neighbors, the way it looks. I, I, I like it. Now, if it was perennial ryegrass, it probably would still look fine, but I think I'd have to be mowing that thing a lot more <laughs> to get disease. I think I'd have to have more maintenance on it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just. In, in your environment, I would expect more summertime disease, but um, yeah. you probably would have to mow it a little longer because we do know um, perennial ryegrass is one of those grasses that, um, you know, continues to be active at cooler temperatures, both yeah. in the spring and the fall. So, yeah. you know, from that sustainability side of things and mowing frequency, um, you're going to probably mow earlier in the spring and you're going to mow a little later into the fall. Yeah. And I, and I like Kentucky bluegrass too. It's just for a home lawn that doesn't, for me... I don't really want to water my lawn and here in Kentucky, it just, it just starts to go into like drought induced dormancy. So, I mean, much, much faster than turf type tall fescue. I don't know if it's a root function or what it is. I'm not a plant person, but it, it just seems like the bluegrasses just need a little bit more care than the turf type tall fescues do here in Lexington at least. So um, yeah, that's consistent up our way in West Lafayette as well. So it is. It's okay. It's in Kentucky. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's continue. Let's get into the fun stuff here. Some of the results. Um, do you want to talk about the weather conditions or is there anything? Or can we... I think what I can tell you is those two years were not remarkable. Okay. Yeah, they weren't wet. They weren't really dry. They were, they were, my, my recollection is that they weren't too crazy. Pretty typical. Okay. Good to know. They weren't like 2012, which was super dry and super hot. We didn't have that in here. So, okay. Uh, well, dry matter yield, this table, I'm not going to be able to fit. I'll, I'll, I'll go through it and see if I can get it on the screen. Okay. I can um, walk people through this, what we did. Do what? So you got the, you got the two years, 2004, okay. 2005. Okay. And you know, Christy was taking these clippings every single week, right? Trying to get this, this, get her arms around how much, how much and when, uh, these nitrogen programs were affecting growth of these different grasses. So. What we did is we broke it into periods there. You can see basically early spring, April, May. Okay. So that uh, late spring, early summer, May through July, then true summer, July, August, and then whatever mowing she had from September to the, you know, basically the second week in November for each of the years. Mm -hmm. And then on the far right, you know, there's a summary of the, uh, you know, each year. And okay. then also the, the cumulative uh, amount of clippings for the two years together. So if you add column, 2004 total to 2005 total, you should yeah. get what the study totals were. Okay. Uh, then on the left-hand side, you know, you can see broke out, you know, Kentucky bluegrass, all the programs, mm -hmm. brand ryegrass, all the programs, turf type yeah. tall fescue, all the programs. But then we also have the, the study means under the four, under the three right-hand columns. Uh, so if you go uh, species mean, yeah. uh, that would be 
you can see that we changed the, the letters for the uh, statistical analysis. So those are the Capital uppercase letters. letters and you yeah. can compare those with the other uppercase letters. Yeah. And then within the species, the lowercase letters, that's only comparing within perennial ryegrass or Kentucky bluegrass or turf type tall fescue. Yeah. Let me just highlight these. So yeah, people sure. are gonna I, see. I think that's great. I think that it's helpful if somebody's yeah. digging into this information. Yeah. So these capital letters are comparing themselves against other capital letters. Correct. And um, so we don't want to get, so for example, this number here is greater than, because it has an A and these have B's and C's, this number here is greater than that number and that number and so Correct. forth. We're not comparing it within these. Correct. within these. And, it, and it, it's the same as basically what we saw in that summary table is the turf type tall fescue across all this, all the uh, nitrogen programs. That's the highest biomass. Yeah. Um, and then you see the the bluegrasses were second behind that. And then for the most part, sometimes, at least in year one, the perennial ryegrass was similar to the Kentucky bluegrass. Yeah. But then in the second year of the study, and then for the total, the perennial ryegrass produced the least amount of growth when averaged across all the all the all the uh, uh, the nitrogen programs. Okay. And so what this tells me what this what this was telling me uh, from a practical side is you gotta feed ryegrass. Okay. You got to feed ryegrass. You don't probably need to feed tall fescue quite as much if it's oh well established. I mean, because Travis, you probably talked to people about this as well is, you know, you've got establishment fertility programs, the grow in programs, mm -hmm. and then you have maintenance programs. Sure. Yeah. And I would argue that as organic matter and other things accumulate in the turf grass soil profile that, you know, over time you can start to decrease your nitrogen total nitrogen amounts, maybe you're still feeding the same number of times, mm -hmm. but you maybe don't have to do the same total amount throughout the growing season. Well, yeah, I mean, the kale, the evidence in the literature is substantial. It supports yeah. that hundred percent really. There's a, well, I didn't ever publish it and I keep kicking myself that I didn't publish this. I still have it. Maybe I'll get around to doing it where, uh, we remove the top layer of this, you know, 90 year old organic soil that had built built up and removed it and we compared it to where it was and removed it and the amount of nitrogen required on that organic soil down in fort lauderdale was less than a half a pound a year on on uh i think it was celebration bermuda mm -hmm. but on the soil that we removed and it was fresh no organic matter basically it was six or seven pounds a year to keep it acceptable so the, the that, that's just i know it's, it's hearsay until i publish it but that's just an extreme example, but it's very, very clear. And the there's multiple literature examples of that, where if it's an established turf, you have deep root systems and it's in a, it's a healthy, mature soil with organic matter, the amount of nitrogen you need to apply to that is vastly different. And that than a, than a soil that's with low organic matter and a young, young turf, but that's the challenge. And I don't have the answer to this, Kale. How, how do we, as a, as scientists, provide a program or provide recommendations to to lawn care operators where on one route they might experience the whole variation of young turf on vir on virgin soil young turf on established soil old turf on virgin i mean there's just a, a whole variety and it's on one truck that person would encounter and they're generally applying the same product across all those conditions you know i, I don't have an answer to that but yeah. It's a hey, uh, Travis, there, there's a, a question in the chat. It says, I think it's from Chad there. What is the total end rate measurement? Did I oh, read that to yeah, total end rate. So it's right here on the left, Chad. So I'm assuming he's asking about this. You want to, you can talk about tail if you want to, but yeah, that's, that's here's uh, to your point. 
here's the end rates. That's the total N for the year. For the year, yeah. And then you had to go back into those other tables to see yeah. how we partitioned that out. Yeah. So here, yeah. So here's the total. And I'm sorry. I'll just say it because some people aren't watching. They'll be listening in their car or something. So the the, <laughs> the September only application had one pound in. The November only application had a pound and a half in. And then you go into April, May, and June. So the the nitrogen split between April, May, and June. We got a pound in April, and then looks like three quarters, three yep. quarter, three quarters of a pound in May, and three quarters of a pound in July. And then you have September, November, where it's a half a pound in September and a pound and a half in November. So this is that's that's how you can work your way through this, guys. Yeah. And then it, the the highest rate that was applied was four pounds, but it was split over either four months in the case of the September, November, May, and June treatment, or five months in the September, October, November, April, May treatment. So. You can see, and you can, and that's what I'm going to, I'm going to scroll back down and you're going to see the influence of this. The, 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 I would say the primary takeaway from, if you're looking at nitrogen rates or the treatment is not so much the time it was applied, but the amount of N was applied. That's how it affected the dry matter yield. So I'm going to scroll back down there and, and show, show what I'm talking about. When you see here, and this was to Chad's question about the rates. These rates here are four pounds a year. And you'll see over here on the 2005 total, 2004 total is a little less clear, but 2005 total, you'll see it. They has the, the two highest rates for Kentucky bluegrass, right? It tends, and they, they tend to be the higher rates. Actually, yeah, they are the higher rates. The, and it goes down into the, the uh, two and a half pound rates. But these are all A's. So the, 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 the rate of growth tended and correct me if I'm wrong, Kale, it's your paper. I mean, but it tended to be mostly influenced by the amount of nitrogen that was applied and only secondarily influenced by the time in which it was applied. Is that true, Kale? Uh, I'd say as a general rule, that would be correct. I mean, no. there's, there's a couple of subtle differences in there, but it's, it's nothing of major practical importance. Yeah. And there's some time, well, here in, in type, type tall fescue down here, mm-hmm. we can see that the rate had little effect all the way down mm-hmm. until you got down to one pound. Mm-hmm. in the first year so yeah. even the second year is a lot of a's here again to your point you know that that lawn care operator that's doing blanket one size fits all programs for every single lawn some of the lawns especially if it's a turf type tall fescue lawn they're they're spending money on product they don't need to spend money on the product right so well we i, I do talk a lot about that that and i talk more about that i haven't gone into the cost of nitrogen sources yet i guess maybe that'll be coming up soon but you know there are differences in cost of nitrogen sources and then we we talked really it must have been i mean i guess you i guess i wish i could remember the, the in leaching study we talked about but if if 60 percent of the nitrogen is leaching off which was oh it was the it was the gallardin uh okay oh, yep. gallard's paper yep. i can't Connecticut study. yeah where you have 60% of it leaching off of your, go back and I don't want to get the numbers wrong, but it's in, it's already been, we've already talked about it. So I don't want to misquote the paper, but um, there was a percentage of nitrogen that was lost in when applied in December or November relative to September. And the point is whether you're an environmentalist or a business person and you know, whatever side you're on, you're on both sides, you're still losing that nitrogen. In other words, it's nitrogen that you didn't gain anything that you paid for, right? you pay for it, you applied it and it didn't get in the plant. So, you know, to your, to your point, could we be more efficient with some of these programs and with some of the rates? And in here, or at least in tarf type tall fescue in the first year, 
whether you applied a pound and a half or whether you applied four pounds, the total dry matter yield was the same. Mm-hmm. So there's an example of interesting you know trying to and even in the second year you see a, you see a separation here when you get down to the low end rates dramatic. but it's not dramatic but you do I mean, the, the a's are pretty similar between the four pounds and the pound and a half i mean you see Correct. a lot of a's here and over here in the total the study total you see a lot of a's meaning yep. meaning guy for who's not watching but listening meaning that there was no difference between the two pound rates and the pound and the well, two and a half pound rate at 123. It's an, I haven't seen that 123, so I can't. I'm trying to remember that's two and a half pounds. Uh, but when you get down there in the low one pound rate, then yeah, it tended to be the least, the least, the lowest yeah, growth. I remember those were those those were those late season application only. So yeah, and in general, you'll kind of see the same thing even in the other the other other grasses where you'll see, you know, this was a little bit different here, but you'll see the the higher rates grow grass more it's not rocket science really that's not a that's not a we, we didn't split the atom here on that that finding but it just whether the grass whatever the turf species was the the time in which it was applied was secondarily influencing the the growth rate the major factor was the amount of nitrogen that was applied that's sort of what i'm pulling out from this there are like i said there are differences as you mentioned here and there that we can pull out but generally that's the case when we get to the next one Canopy green is so can it, so I just wanted to read a couple things in the green real quick and you scale stop me and you want to read the whole thing we can read the whole thing well, I'm going to get to the table uh, but Kentucky bluegrass I'm reading from the text Kentucky bluegrass was the greenest followed by t- turf type tall fescue and perennial ryegrass yes. I don't think that's crazy I mean Kentucky bluegrass is oftentimes very dark green um, right and, and I, I think that's the I, I don't think we should spend a lot of time on this particular section and um i don't know okay. how much time we have total for okay. our, our here today but yep. to your to your point and i think this is in, important with especially our newer turf type tall fescues mm. and the ryegrasses is we continue to breed for darker green color yes. and that was yes. part of my mindset with this study as well is if if somebody wants the darkest green lawn is right plant, right place. Choose some cultivars that are dark green. You don't have to fertilize them as much, right? Yeah, exactly. There was something the other day. What was I watching? It was, uh, oh, I better not say anything. I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but there was, there was some conversation about what should I do under these situations? You know, should I do this or should I do that? But the, I can't remember the scenario, but basically to me, the solution was not continue that what the, the idea was, what can I continue to do to eliminate, um, disease or do whatever do i have to constantly apply this or whatever what's the what's the solution but then they were talking about different rates of products and continue you're going to have to continue to apply this and i was thinking to myself why not just start from scratch and get get a better genetics in there get the right plant in there it's going to cost you more on the upfront but then you don't have to constantly apply this product year after year after year i don't know that's my viewpoint on on, on in that particular situation i know it doesn't do you much good you don't know the situation but it just seemed like, wait a second here, guys. The problem is the plant. It's in the wrong spot. <laughs> get it, get the right plant in there, and you won't have to worry about all those troubles. Uh, okay, canopy green. So we'll we'll skip through this. Is that okay? I mean, we yeah. Can go? That's that's. Not, I mean, okay, okay. Yeah, let's let's move on. Okay. That one. Um. So our data su- supports the requirement for middle and late autumn nitrogen applications of Kentucky bluegrass, where fast spring green up and duration of greenness yep. is important. Because so, that's important too, uh, with our respect, I think that's important for your audience is a lot of these Kentucky bluegrass um, blends will oftentimes have some of the midnight types in them. Hmm. And we know from our particular location in West 
Lafayette is those are some of the ones that green up more slowly compared to some of the other Kentucky bluegrasses. And so we don't want people putting down excess nitrogen in the spring simply for spring green up and you know, if the plant's not growing well. So, you know, preload it a little bit in the fall and uh, you're going to get a little quicker green up in the spring. Yep. Okay. Now disease you had, uh, can Flygrass you, got can, hammered. yeah, <laughs> got hammered. There's, there's, I was going to ask, can you, can you, in layman's terms, can you tell exactly, tell people exactly what 57.8% blight looks news. like? That's bad news. <laughs> I mean, that's, 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 uh, that's, uh, and the primary disease issue was dollar spot, you know, in that, yeah. in that summer period. And, uh, it just got, it, it just got beat up. Yeah. Beat up. Now and we know that from previous studies, and maybe you've highlighted some of these that, uh, leaf nitrogen content, uh, can have a very strong influence on dollar spot incidence and severity. So, but ryegrass as a plant, like, like AJ said, back in the day, the grass, we love to hate, mm. um, your environment, my environment, hot, humid summer, uh, long periods of leaf wetness, um, yeah. ryegrass can get hammered. Now, and I, like, I, I'm, I'm a turf person, but I'm a soil person first, I, and I, I deal with turf as my plant. But I, I'm not a I'm not a plant physiologist. I've, I'm going to tell you something that I've always assumed, and you tell me I'm wrong or, or I'm right. I don't know. Um, I always assume that these big box stores put in perennial ryegrass in these these seed blends and they're stores because um let's say you buy a bag of tall fescue or cool whatever that sometimes they don't even call it that they call it like shade blend or they'll call it summer blend or whatever but it'll have perennial ryegrass in there i've always assumed they just put that in there because the the end user sees green faster it germinates so fast they'll see it green up but then it just dies out later in kentucky anyway usually is that the case? They just want they just so the homeowner can see it turn green real quick, and the, while the I other think ones... that's part of it, and that that initial satisfaction factor. Um, yeah. Uh, some of these ryegrasses are really really good, and they're not going to completely disappear in the summer months. But okay. we also know they're a bunch type grass. They're not going to be overly invasive, but they they can get clumpy. So. Okay. Yep. I just thought because I was wondering, like, well, it seems like. Whatever, I'll move on. It just, I just I wonder why they just put that in there. It's just going to germinate really, really quickly. But that's not the grass we want. We would like to have 100% tall, tall, tall fescue, but you can't really find that at some of these big box stores. Um, why did I highlight this? Disease severity of perennial ryegrass as affected by eight nitrogen program. Oh, so this is how it how it was affected by the nitrogen program itself. Yeah. Um, the one thing I just wanted to point out, it, it wasn't, a whole, to me, it didn't s- seem like there was a whole lot of difference, but in other words, like the, the, the blight that year, that year two, yeah. all the programs of ryegrass really just got lit up, got hit. Yeah. So on ryegrass, it didn't really matter the amount or Correct. the timing of the application. They all got hammered. Yeah, they were we all, cure, we did a, we did a curative chlorothalonil application to, to arrest it there in July Yeah, because, because we were, we were so concerned about the the you know the the potential for catastrophic turf loss and yeah um, so we had to we had to check it up yeah i mean 81 the highest was 80 something percent yeah, I mean, it was bad <laughs> but it's a foliar it's a foliar disease i mean the grass yeah. can to a certain extent grow out of it but um okay it just it illustrated why we don't want 100 percent ryegrass lawns there you go let's get into the beauty contest as you said when averaged across the entire study and nitrogen programs, turf quality ranked turf tall fescue was greater than Kentucky bluegrass, and then Kentucky bluegrass was greater than perennial ryegrass. 
with mean values of 7, 6.7, and 6.3. That's in table 2. So they were all acceptable, but you're looking at a difference between cult or species of a full, well, almost a full quality point from 6.3 mm-hmm. to 7. Of all, I'm going to read through the screen and then we're going to go to the table. Sure. Of all the three species, Kentucky bluegrass was the slowest to green up, resulting in low 2.8 to 6.0 quality ratings, which would be deemed unacceptable when rated when rating lawn turf quality. Uh, for, for all species on many rating dates, the low September only nitrogen program produced qual- turf grass quality ratings similar to the unfertilized plot. And that's why I, I highlighted this. I want to comment on this and get your input. So what this is, I'm going to back up, this, the September one pound nitrogen, many, in most cases, did not differ from non-fertilized turf throughout the study. That's what this, that's basically right. the translation yeah. of what he's saying. The highest. It was, it, was going, it was going back to that idea of if you can only fertilize your lawn one time mm-hmm. and, you know, that dogma of fall fertility seems to be what we're always preaching. Yeah. Um, in, in this particular study, that single application in September only was insufficient. Wasn't enough. Yeah. Uh, here's the quality table. We're going to get to it. Let me read this last thing. What, for all species on many rating dates, the low September. Oh, I just said that. Okay. The highest turf quality values were generally associated with the high nitrogen programs. Shocker. Which, <laughs> which resulted in the greenest turf. So you apply more nitrogen, Shocker. you get greener turf. <laughs> nitrogen causes greening and growth. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you add more of it. Yeah. Um, so here we are looking at the quality ratings. I like quality ratings. I, I prefer to use quality ratings for the average sort of explanation of what happened rather than like root growth or other metrics that we measure because I've argued before that the homeowner is looking at the quality and that quality is subjective to their perspective. And we try our best in the quality ratings to, you know, measure that. I mean, what is acceptable to the average person? And so this, in my view, although it can be debated in my view is, is the metric that is most, um, I don't know, is the number that is most similar to what the homeowner or the, the operator would, would look at. They're looking at the turf. Is it acceptable or not? Um, and, what I've done here, Kales, I've highlighted the, the non-treated when red. And I'm going to talk about that first. In in Kentucky Blue, and we have Kentucky bluegrass, all three grasses, Kentucky bluegrass in the three in the two years, and perennial ryegrass two years, and turf type tall fisk in the two years, and then the study mean for each of those species. And the unfertilized or non-fertilized plots were either acceptable or right at the line of acceptability. So 5.9, 5.96. Five point okay, five point six is a little low here. That would be noticeable. And then five point nine, six point two, six point zero. Turf types were always accept. Tur- the tall fescues were always acceptable. The perennial ryegrass was acceptable in the first year, and the Kentucky bluegrass. I mean, I don't know how you you see kale, but I mean, five point nine and six point zero are, are probably indistinguishable from from out there. But it's five point nine, and the reason I say that is because. Your, your study yesterday that we we discussed, the control was always acceptable. If I recall correctly, the control was was very good. I mean, no, no, I'm, let me, I'm sorry, let me back up. The control was not acceptable in the second two, the two last years. And we saw a much more magnified effect of the nitrogen when the turf grass uh, was unacceptable when you didn't apply nitrogen. But in this case, the, the non-treated turf grass was marginally acceptable most of the time yep. uh, with no nitrogen. And so when we apply one pound of nitrogen from September, we have, here's the one pound in, um, we don't see 
a whole lot of benefit to that, right? I, and Correct. I and I don't know how you feel about that, but I think in this case, I mean, well, one pound's probably not enough. Let's be honest. I mean, you probably need a little bit more than that. But but in this case, you're dealing with a different system and a different situation in the paper yesterday. So you're going to have slightly different results. Is that fair to say? Correct. Correct. So um, do you want to walk us through the rest of this? I've highlighted a few here that sort of stood out to me. The um, the study means of the Kentucky bluegrass um, from the from the two and a half pound treatment. You do see a, a, an increase when you increase the nitrogen rates. Obviously, you see that. And these are the ones that differed from from the from the one pound September treatment, right? Um, I don't know if there's anything else you you want to talk about no, specifically I don't in think here. There's a whole lot here, other than you know you, you've got a lot of stuff highlighted there. Um, we we know that our turf grasses are responsive, um, and it it looks like um, you know from this study. Uh, if you're looking for the more sustainable species, you know, and, and I'm looking for, you know, the, the bell shaped curve of lawns for that, you know, middle of the road lawn, that there is a pretty strong case here for, you know, some high, high percentage of turf type tall fescue in the lawn mix for those that either don't want to, or are not able to, or just don't understand how to feed their lawn. And they're still going to get at least acceptable quality. Yeah. Um, but the, the blue grasses and the rye grasses, what this data shows is they're very responsive and, and they want to be fed to look their best. So, yeah, let's, let's, that, I know what I wanted to mention now. I finally remembered here on that note, the turf type tall fescues. When you're looking at turf type tall fescues, let's just start with one pound and up here. You know, let's start with the, with the non-treated. They're always acceptable. 6.2, 6.0. The average was 6.1. The pretty there's, there's an X factor there. Remember, we go all the way back. You talked about the soil conditions. And so there, this particular soil, there was some organic matter, right? So yep. we had 4.6 or 4.9, which is a, a, a medium high. So there, there's probably some mineralization that's happening there. It's not a brand new subsoil from somebody's basement that got dug that's got like 1% organic matter. So you would have yeah. to probably feed that a little more. So that's that's the it depends of this. Yeah. Yeah. But, but when, to your point, there's all the ratings for the tall fescue are acceptable, right? Exactly. And even up here in the one pound, you see them all, they're all acceptable. The study mean, even with, well, it just seems like the study, the study means are just generally higher. When you're applying four pounds in, it's seven and a half, the study mean on, on tall fescue. Now we're not comparing species here, but the perennial ryegrass was 6.7. We're talking about a, almost a full point lower. Yep. And, and the bluegrasses and the, the blue higher programs for the bluegrasses were all above seven, right? Yeah, they were all above seven. So you're looking at a significant reduction even you're using perennial ryegrass. It's the sort of, I guess, what I was going to say. And don't plant perennial ryegrass by itself for a lawn. <laughs> I would I would agree with that in Kentucky as well. We yeah. we would prefer to not see that. Um, okay, we're coming coming down to the end here. Do you want to go over the the tables? I didn't have the. I mean, I'm sorry, the graphs yeah, here, so, the figures. Uh, the, these tables. What, what what I was trying to, what Christy and I were trying to do uh, in these tables was 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 trying to take all this data and look if you're having places that you have things overlapping and crossing mm. in oh. such a way that you're kind of finding some of those sweet spots where 
okay, I, I manipulate this variable and this particular factor is, is trying to get, you know, a lot of the economic folks, they, they want things high and to the right, you know, yes. everything's going to be all the response variables high and to the right. Can I, it's, can I interject but, something right here? Cause you sure. mentioned this very pretty clearly in the text right here. And I didn't highlight it, but I will now. To effectively recommend nitrogen pro, I'm going to read this clearly and slowly, so I want people to understand it. To effectively recommend nitrogen programs for cool season lawns, dry matter yield, greenness, and overall appearance must be considered. So that's what we're measuring. However, of these factors, greenness and dry matter yield are the most important. So that's what you're saying here, Kale. Right? You're okay, and that's what these figures are attempting to see if there's any crossing yeah. over. So go because ahead, please. I, I, I don't know anybody and maybe some of these folks that are listening, but I don't know anybody that's having a yield contest for a lawn. <laughs> right? exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, my, my friends on the agronomic production crop side of things at the university, you know, there's, there are all these little yield contests, but I don't know anybody on the turf side of things that's looking for the yield contest. Exactly. If you're, if you, if you're winning the yield contest, you're losing with the environment because you're probably overwatering, you're over fertilizing, you're mowing too much. Yeah. And it probably looks things. worse too. Cause you got clippings all over the lawn and piles yeah. hanging out, you know, if you're not mowing it, but if they're, if they're mowing it, they're mowing all baling hay, basically it probably doesn't right. look near so, as good. So, so, so what we were trying to do with these graphs is trying to find those sweet spots of, you know, balancing enough vigor but also maintaining, you know, a, 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 a high level of greenness. Hmm. Um, and then also, you know, with quality, part of quality is shoot density, right? Mm -hmm. You know, a good, high, a good high quality turf is going to be a dense turf. So, mm -hmm. so that's, that's what we're looking at here. Okay. So this was Kentucky bluegrass. Each of these figures are the same, it's just for each species. Yeah. So this is Kentucky bluegrass. Yep. The next one is perennial okay. ryegrass. And then yep. we have turf type tall fescue. Yep. And what um, you can also see there is for each of the graphs, I believe the uh, the Y axis, the left axis, we kept all those the same, right? They all go to twelve hundred. On the same scale, okay, yeah. So you can kind of if you if you cut those out and put them all on top of each other, and uh -huh. uh, what you see there is you know the tall fescue creates more biomass. I mean, this is just illustrating, yep. uh, you know those those points, and then across the X axis, the bottom axis are the are the different nitrogen programs. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that's, 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 that's what you're seeing. Okay. Perfect. And on, on the right hand side is the, uh, is the, is the canopy greenness or the color index values. Yeah. So yeah, ideally what you want is something that has uh, a high color index, but a moderate level of dry matter yield. You don't yeah. want the lowest amount, but at the same time, you don't want clippings everywhere either. Yeah. Well, like I said, if I could, if I could never mow my yard, I'd be perfectly happy, but I do want it to be green. Well, you wouldn't get the exercise then. <laughs> you wouldn't get your steps in. I've been building a deck on the back of my lawn and I had to cut my, my automower wire to build it. I've had my, I've had my automower in my okay. house the entire year. So I've been walking, I've been, yeah, I've been walk mowing 0.3 acres for this entire year and I'm, I'm done with it. I mean, this is, what am I doing? So I, I've got my exercise this year, but I, I mean, you have to understand, Kel, I don't want to do anything to my yard other than enjoy it with my kids. I don't want to maintain any of it. So you're, you're not alone. And that's, that's, <laughs> that's, I, I keep those kinds of, I keep those kinds of things inside my brain when I think about these kinds of studies, because I want somebody to have 
the best quality lawn without having to do as much to it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what we're looking at here is we're looking at greenness compared or relative to the dry matter yield. And, you know, so we're trying to figure out, you guys are basically trying to display, visually display those two, those two effects. So good. I like that. Uh, I'll read through the last little green part here and we'll get to the conclusions. For all three species, these figures show that there appears to be no advantage to a single annual nitrogen application of one pound of nitrogen in September compared with the non-fertilized control for canopy greenness and for dry matter yield. There is a significant advantage, however, to applying a single annual nitrogen application of a pound and a half in November, especially for turf-type tall fescue. Um, so that was at the end of the results and the conclusions more or less kind of summarize that I can read through this green, the highlighted parts over here. Or you can, if you prefer, you can kind of just conclude the whole show if you want to, okay, whatever you feel comfortable with. All I, I have is this left. We've hit on a lot of these things and, um, what, if, if there was a take home from me seeing this again, you know, a good, whatever, 15 years later and, and kind of reflecting on what we were doing at the time and, you know, some of the take home points is, you know, Ideally, you know, textbook would say something like, you know, uh, an ideal optimized lawn is going to require a steady supply of nitrogen throughout the growing season. And, and so however you do that, you know, this is a biological system. Mm-hmm. We're feeding it with nitrogen because we know nitrogen, amino acids, proteins, growth, all those other kinds of things. We know that there's a requirement there for, for the nitrogen in a, in a turf system. Um, how you space your meals is the way that sometimes I discuss these things is, you know, you and I aren't going to get up in the, in each day and, you know, eat all of our calories first thing in the morning, nor are we going to have all of our calories right before we go to bed, because that's going to lead to an energy deficiency throughout our waking hours. And so think about those kinds of same things with respect to your lawn throughout the growing season. And I, I do like some sort of feeding across the growing season and and adapting to growing conditions. You might have a rainier summer and, you know, a rainier summer oftentimes results in a little bit more growth and Mm -hmm. you might need to add an extra quarter pound of N at a certain point during the growing season. Um, But I, I, I'm proud of what Christy had done with this study for us and um, you know, really demonstrating and, and, and helping to educate some folks that, if you want more sustainable lawns that don't need to be fed as much and are going to provide a, a reasonable quality uh, lawn across the entire growing season, that planting some more turf type tall fescues makes a lot of sense. I, I think this paper really highlights why we don't want 100% ryegrass lawns in our particular climate. Um, you know, there are parts of the United States that ryegrass by itself does okay, but it's not mm-hmm. in it's not in that juicy summer humid summer uh where, where, where is it by the way where is it <laughs> right besides overseas to bermuda or something like that i think i think out west into some of those um okay you know the, the pacific northwest and you know areas around places like okay. um, san francisco where it never gets overly hot uh you can you can do pretty well in in those those climates okay uh, I, th- I think even to a certain extent some of the high desert areas of the southwest okay um, you know places like sedona or flagstaff or um, you know, the, the, the high desert parts of Arizona and New Mexico, some of the ryegrasses can do okay there. Perfect. Um, Good to know. Great. Yeah. Again, right plant, right place. Definitely. There's one or two questions. Sure. Uh, let's look at the question. So Thomas strong, I don't know if these are for me or for you. I'll just ask them and you feel free to answer uh, them. 
And then, uh, and then I actually need to wrap it up here. So, but, so we'll do the two questions and then. Okay. Uh, well, if you got to wrap it up, then I'll just be one question. Let's do the questions. So I can I'm, I'm curious if any of these studies looked at ammonium sulfate being applied as the in-source versus urea. Mm-hmm. I've read that in colder environments. That is just about one, one late season apps that it's just about 100% absorbed. One, there's no nitrogen source I've ever seen ever that's ever 100% absorbed. We're really lucky if it's 80% absorbed. Uh, it's more like 60 on a, on a, on a good day. Um, so whether it's urea or ammonium sulfate, there are differences between those, but, um, nothing's even remotely close to being hundred percent absorbed. It's 60, 80 is astronomically high under a natural condition. It's very, very high. So, um, whether it's not ammonium sulfate or urea, I would, I would say that it would depend on the situation, whether your pH or whether you're sulfate deficient or, there's a lot of different variables in there, which one you want to choose, but both of them are very good, uh, soluble nitrogen sources that result in acceptable turf grasses. Whether one's better than the other would depend on your conditions. Do you have any other input on that, Kale? Um, no. And, and, and I've heard, you know, anecdotally and, I, and there's, there's maybe a, a, a little bit of, of documented information about the, uh, the ammonium sulfate in the cooler times of the year. And, yeah. You know, the difference there is, is you've got a nitrogen source, you do have the sulfur source, and maybe mm-hmm. some people see some response in situations where sulfur is a little limiting in the, in the soil system. But I think overall, nine times out of 10, you're going to see an equivalent response. Yeah. And, and to your point, you're not going to see a hundred percent uptake of either fertilizer. Yeah, no, there are, there are, I actually have a document. I'm actually finished it up just now. I'm writing the paper now where I had a sulfur deficiency on Kentucky bluegrass and I'm writing that paper now, but it, it's the reason I did it. The reason I have it is because it's so, it has been so rare when I saw it, I jumped on it immediately. I mean, man, we got to write this because it's, I think it's becoming more frequent. I know they, they documented it in, here in Kentucky on corn just as recent as three years ago. So we're starting to see more sulfur deficiency, but those are two very good nitrogen sources as long as your pH is in the reasonable range, you're good with either one. If your pH is really, really low fours, low fives, I would move away from ammonium sulfate. Um, that's all I'm going to ask you on those questions. I have two questions for you. You can just say, if you don't want to answer them, just say pass. They're just fun questions. They're very easy. Two of them. Uh, what turf do you have in your home lawn? So I have an older home. Uh, so I have what came with my house and I have a, um, um, you know, whatever was planted there probably in the, uh, the early sixties is whatever has sort of adapted to the site. Okay. <laughs> um, I have overseeded my lawn, uh, periodically some of the thin areas and, uh, certainly use some turf type tall fescues. Part of the lawn has some large oaks. Uh, so, you know, I've kind of tried to pound some seed into some of those areas that are a little thin, but, uh, also a couple of years ago, uh, put some of the, um, um, some things like the chewings fescue into some of those areas. And, and I don't have an irrigation system in my lawn. Uh, I prefer to fertilize my lawn as few times a year as possible. Uh, we also have two dogs. We have two large dogs in our house and anybody that's had a, a lawn and larger dogs that, uh, that can complicate things at times. But, uh, I have a hodgepodge and I also have broadleaf weeds in my lawn. So, uh, <laughs> as do uh, I, it's, it's a, it's a somewhat sustainable lawn. Good. Last question, and then we'll wrap it up and we'll say goodbye. Maybe not as easy to answer as the first question. If I were to ask your colleagues, mm-hmm. what is Kel Bigelow best known for in the world of turf grass science? What do you think they would say? Oof, that is, that's a really hard one. Um, 
I'd say he's he's a teacher that cares. Excellent. I'll, I'll leave it right there. That's that's as good an answer as I can come up with myself. So, Dr. Bigelow, thank you so much for for coming on. I, I really appreciate your time. I know it's valuable. I know you've been busy at the ASA. I, I'm I'm very happy that you're able to join us tonight, despite uh, your busy schedule. I'd, I'd be happy to come back to this and. You know, we've got some really nice papers that are coming out related to water needs of lawns. And, um, you know, my most recent graduate student, Jada, she's done a lot of really nice work with uh, things like tall fescue and brown patch in these nutritional inputs. So uh, if you want to do something down the road, be happy to kind of sounds good. bring just the facts. <laughs> sounds good. Thanks so much, Kel. I appreciate it. For everybody else, I'll be back in 11 hours for tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Until then. Thank you so much, Dr. Bigelow. Thank you all for joining me. We'll see you tomorrow morning. It was my pleasure. See you, Kel. See you, everybody. Bye-bye.